Welcome to Your Cyber Path, the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job by sharing the secrets of experienced hiring managers and top cybersecurity professionals with you. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Hi, welcome. This is Your Cyber Path. We're the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job. Or if you're already working in cybersecurity, we are going to help you uh, get that promotion that you want, the increased responsibilities, the better compensation. Maybe you want to change employers. You're already working in cybersecurity. And you just want to go someplace new with bigger and better challenges. Well, we're going to help you with that as well. So we're glad you're here. Uh, my name's Kip Boyle. This is Jason Dion. Hey, Jason. Hey, Kip. Well, it's great to be back for a new episode. And uh, according to the editorial calendar, as folks are listening to this for the first time, it's September. And if you're a parent, your kids should already be back in school. And if you want to get a new job, this is peak hiring season for the rest of the year. And so if you do want to change employers, you'd better get busy. If you're not busy already, you need to get busy. And I've got a suggestion for you. If you haven't started down, you know, this uh, get a new job, uh, you know, task in front of you right now. And maybe even if you've just started, I want you to go and sign up for a course that Jason and I made. It's called Irresistible. And what are we doing in that course? Well, it's an online course. It's at Udemy. I'm going to give you a URL in a moment that's going to give you the best possible price on this course. So it's an online video course. And this is what we did. Jason and I took every hiring manager secret that we discovered over the long period of time that we have been hiring people and building teams. And, you know, we found out as we were doing that, that there were certain people who stood out to us as we were reviewing resumes and conducting interviews. And of course, as we hired people, we had to live with the consequences of our decisions. And we learned what makes candidates uh, stand out in the hiring process. And what are those qualities that also tell us that this person is probably going to do a great job once we bring them onto our team? Jason and I put all that we knew together and we put it in this course for you. So if you want to know what it's like to sit on the other side of the uh, of the hiring table and you want to get into our head and know, you know what it is we're looking for, this is the course that's going to let you do that. Um, and uh, now the best way for you to get there is I want you to go to yourcyberpath.com forward slash Udemy. When you go there, you're going to see a link to all the courses that Jason and I have done together for our listeners here. You're going to see the one for Irresistible. I want you to click on that. And then that'll take you over to the purchase page. And then you can check out the course. And again, you're going to get the best possible price. So Jason, how does that work, getting the best possible price? Why, why do it this way? Yeah, so if you go to Udemy directly, they're going to basically uh, use a bunch of different factors to give you a price, right? And that price is going to be based on where you live in the world. It's going to be based on if you're on a Mac versus a Windows machine, an iPhone versus an Android. Uh, I've noticed that Android users get cheaper prices than iPhone users. Don't know why, but apparently they do. Uh, and there's all sorts of different factors that Udemy uses. Time of day, how well the course is selling on that particular day versus mm. another day, all sorts of different factors. But if you go over to our website at yourcyberpath.com slash Udemy and you click on those, those have an embedded coupon link already inside them. And usually the coupon link is just the three digits of the month and the year. So if you're doing this right now as it, as it came out, it'll be September 2023. If you wait until October, use OCT 2023, et cetera. But if you just go to Dion, uh, sorry, if you just go to uh, yourcyberpath.com slash Udemy, we already have that link in there. You click on it. 
that tells Udemy you came from us and we're able to set the price once a month at the lowest possible price. And we talk about the pricing on Udemy. Generally, it's somewhere between $10 and $20 for the course. This is not a $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 program. Um, it's, it's, we made this specifically on Udemy to be an inexpensive thing because we didn't want price to be getting in the way of you getting the information that you want. So as I said, on, on Udemy, it's going to cost you somewhere between 10, 15, 20 bucks at most. Um, it's about a six hour course. It's going to teach you everything we know about how to write your resume, where to find jobs, how to do your interviews, how to do your negotiations, how to succeed the first 90 days on the job. All those kind of things are all bundled into this course. Truly download our brain into yours. Um, and if you're a longtime listener of this podcast and you've listened to all 100 plus episodes at this point, you're probably not going to learn anything new, to be quite honest, uh, because we've covered almost all of this uh, in this podcast over this time. The big difference here is instead of having to go and listen to 50 hours of podcast, you can listen to five to six hours of tailor-made course that walks you through these steps. And especially in the resume section, we spend you know three or four videos, almost an hour, hour and a half of content going through how to write your resume. We do examples on the screen of showing you a resume and what kind of bullets you want to write and all that kind of stuff. So right. it's, it's really valuable. And like I said, very low cost, you know, less than yep. what you probably pay for lunch. It's 10 to 20 bucks. Yeah. It, and it's a great way to just bring all of our lessons together. Uh, and it's going to be super convenient for you. We're just going to walk you through everything. And um, yeah. And, and, and like Jason said, it's going to be like the cost of you know like a nice lunch so and, and really the thing is you know we're, we're trying to make it easy and make it so it's not hard work for you right uh which you know obviously brings us to the topic of today which is work factors work factor um, nice which, segue <laughs> well hey there you go yeah. That's what I'm good for. <laughs> there you go i try i tried to pull you back in <laughs> um well yeah so today we're gonna be talking about work factors uh i think we've, we've sold you enough on the course but uh yeah if you want to get that course you can go over to um uh, yoursorrypath.com slash udemy and just as a side plug, as you all know, I'm from Dion Training. We sell all your certification courses. If you need a certification course, you can go to deontraining.com slash Udemy. Same thing applies. Any course with Jason in it, you're going to be able to get there at the lowest price by going to slash Udemy on our website. So uh, yoursirepath.com slash Udemy or deontraining.com slash Udemy. You'll find Irresistible listed on both those sites. All right. Perfect. So now getting into our topic of the day, work factors. Mm -hmm. And we're returning back to our series. We're on the fifth SDP or Secure Design Principle. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So what is a work factor, Kip? What are we right. talking about? So work factor, again, this is like uh, straight from the minds of academics in 1975, right? So it takes a little decoding for us to understand what these things are in the modern day. But uh, trust me, this is absolutely relevant. So what work factor means is how much effort is it going to take for somebody to attack you and succeed? Now, this is something that we have successfully borrowed from our friends in the physical security world. And, uh, and specifically, if you're going to buy, let's say you're, you, you run a bank branch and you want to store a bunch of gold bullion. Well, you got to figure out like, well, what kind of safe should I purchase, right? Because safes come in all shapes and sizes. And one of the, one of the characteristics you're going to look for is a rating that's going to say, how long, how many hours would it take a dedicated criminal with the right tools to compromise this safe and steal the gold bullion that's contained within it? So there, there's actually a work factor rating on physical security products. And we've taken that and we've imported it here into, you know, our digital security world. And so, but the way we talk about it these days is we want to make it too expensive for attackers to actually compromise you. We want to make it 
so that they have to work too hard. And let's face it, um, they don't want to work too hard. They're, they're just like you and me. We're looking for the low hanging fruit, right? What's the easiest thing to tip over and scoop up, you know, the digital assets and run away? I mean, that's kind of what's going on. So I tell my customers all the time, you don't need perfect security. You don't need world-class security. You just need to become a more difficult target than the other targets that the bad, bad boys and the bad girls are thinking about going after. If you could just be a little bit more difficult, if you can get that work factor up there for them, they're probably just going to go on to the next uh, opportunity. Now, if you're, uh, if you're being targeted for espionage, that's a different story. But most organizations aren't. Most organizations are just going to become the victim of an opportunistic attacker. And this is where work factor is going to help you. And so how did I learn this? So way back in the early days of my career, no, I didn't start working in 1975. Get that out of your mind right now. So, but when I did work, I had a mentor and he said, don't spend $1,000 to build a fence to protect a $100 horse, right? And that was an incredibly visual, like I could see, I can see this broken down $100 horse behind this high tech $1,000 fence with razor wire across the top of it. And it just made the whole thing snap into place for me. So um, it's not just about making it hard for people, but it's also about uh, business value, right? Don't, don't make it so hard that you've actually spent more money than the thing's worth. So we're talking about balance here, okay? Uh, but you definitely do want the horse thief to look at, at that and say, screw it. I'm going to steal somebody else's cars. That's just too much effort, right? So, uh, but when, you know, when we were doing show prep, Jason, you were telling me about uh, something a lot more relevant and recent. And yeah, you so, absolutely need to share this. So, yeah, I, you know, this is one of those cases where I think uh, when you think about the ROI and the business return of putting in some kind of a security aspect where it can make sense or it cannot make sense, right? And sometimes there's just some stupid business decisions that are made out there based on risk that make no sense to me, right? And this is one that actually hit me uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, my mom owns a Kia Soul. Uh, and if, for those who don't know, here in 2023, Kia and Hyundai, who are both the same manufacturer essentially, um, had a big issue where they were not installing proper anti-theft devices in their cars. Wait, and is the actually, Kia Soul that boxy looking thing that the hamsters are driving around yes, in? Yes, that, okay. that is the Kia Soul, yes. Uh, my mom's on her third one. She loves that stupid oh car. She, she's, she's had three of them now over the last 15 years or so. Um, hamsters for the win yes the hamster marketing apparently won with her and uh, i think it worked because she's really short so it's like an suv for short people uh <laughs> they they designed it for teenagers and then like all the older folks oh, seem to buy them it was it's I really didn't know weird. that um, sorry mom, keep going yeah my mom lives in a called the villages and like i swear the kia soul is like the official car of the villages they're they're everywhere over there oh my um, goodness but anyway uh i digress um so the the issue is that kia and hyundai they make really nice cars, um, and one of the things they've always pride themselves on is putting in features that customers want. But similarly, they will cut out features that customers don't care about, right? So for instance, if I'm going to sell you a house kit, you care what the carpet looks like and the tile looks like and what kind of kitchen it has, right? Yeah. But whether I gave you a, you know, a closet that has a, uh, br a brushed nickel hinge on it with black screws or silver screws probably doesn't matter, right? Because um, you're not going to look at that kind of detail. And so Kia and, and Hyundai are known for taking some shortcuts uh, in places that, that people don't see, right? And one of those was this anti-theft lock device. Most modern cars, if you don't have the right key with the chip and all these things, there's these, the, you can't actually like hotwire the car and steal it. 
Right. Well, it became known that Kia and Hyundai didn't put those things in their cars. And so there was a TikTok trend, go TikTok again, uh, that was, hey, let's go steal cars and go for joy rides. And people started doing that. And so it became such a problem that the insurance industry started dropping customers and saying, we are no longer going to insure your vehicle because you have a Kia and it has not gotten retrofitted with, with some kind of anti-theft device. So Kia has gotten a lot of, uh, Kia and Hyundai have gotten a lot of, a lot of flack for this. Uh, they've now dedicated, I think, almost a half a billion dollars towards wow. fixing this problem and having customers bring back their cars. But the problem is some of these cars cannot be physically upgraded because they never had a, a part for it. It wasn't like it was a feature they, that broke. It was a feature that did not exist. And so my mom has this older Kia Soul and she brought it in for the recall. And the solution that Kia had was here is a club and they installed the club. And her insurance company said, okay, we will give you coverage, but we need that the dealer installs this anti-theft device. So the dealer literally installed the club, which for those who don't know, this was really big in the late 80s, early 90s. <laughs> it, it's basically a big red or big yellow bar that goes across your steering wheel and locks into place so that could you turn on the car? Yes, but could you drive it really easily? No, because you got this big stick across it that gets in the right. way. So that's the whole idea of the club. Anyway, it, it's not a permanent solution. It's something you have to put on and take off. Every time you're going to park the car, you put it on. Every time you're going to drive the car, you take it off. And literally, her insurance company made her go to Kia, which was you know 20 minutes away from her house, have the guy install it, take a picture, and email it into the insurance company going, we Kia installed the club. And then as soon as they did that, they took it off and put it in the passenger seat next door. And that was considered good enough, and the insurance company gave her her insurance. So what does that have to do with all of this? Right? This is talking about what they should have done was a actual recall, and they should have modified the cars with a new part that actually had the anti-theft device that would stay in the car all times. Instead, they went for the cheap solution, right? The $100 solution for the $100 horse, mm -hmm. which was let's give every customer a $50 club and go, yep, we're done, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and to be fair, Kia and Hyundai did not have any legal obligation to do anything about this problem. It was mm. not a manufacturer defect. It was a design choice they made. There's okay. nothing by the NTSB. There's nothing by federal regulations that say, well, it's thou must have, it, right, right. There's things that say you must have seatbelts. You must have airbags. There's nothing that says you must have anti-theft devices. Right. But it now became a problem for all their customers because you can't get insurance on these things right. uh, because of that. And so there was Let alone know that it's going to be in your driveway when you go out to, to actually use it. Exactly, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And so the principle behind this, I think, is a great story because what was going on here, what, what was driving the entire debacle here is the insurance companies were saying, it's too easy to steal this car. Yep. Make it harder increase the work factor. I mean, that's what the insurance companies were looking for. And, and when we're talking about this, right, this wasn't a one-year problem, right? This is something, I'm looking back at the, the dates and pretty much every model since 2011, so we're talking 12 years of yeah, models, it's a 2011s through 2020s, 2021s, 2022s even on some of these cars, pretty much every make and model owned by Kia and Hyundai uh, are, are affected by this, right? And so this is a massive issue. And so if the federal government stepped in and said, Kia and Hyundai, you need to go and replace everybody's uh, you know, ignition starter with this new anti-theft system. It's going to cost you $2,000 per car. They might go, well, why would I spend $2,000 to upgrade an old 2011 Kia Forte that might only be worth $2,000, right? right. So they said, you know, hey, the club makes sense, right? Um, and, and, and so they're what you're going for, the $100 fence for a $100 horse in this case. But <laughs> you're right. It is trying to increase this work factor. Right. And, and I also think it's, it's uh, illustrative of the frustration that I sometimes feel like, let's say I work for the insurance company and I'm saying to myself, we need to increase the work factor here. Otherwise, it's not going to be profitable for us to write these policies. And so we issue a bulletin. We tell the Kia dealers like, 
this is what you need to do in order for this to be insurable. And then these yahoos take a photo of this club on the steering wheel and then throw it in the back seat. And has anything really been accomplished? No. Yep. Right, because that is an active defense, which means I, as the customer, have to literally put it on yeah, every day. Every it's the same thing, um, you know, uh, at my house, right? I get an insurance discount because we have fire sprinklers installed in the house when they built it, right? We have, you know, certain wind ratings. I'm in Florida, and if your roof is put on a certain way, you get a wind mitigation discount and all those kind of things. Those things are great because they exist in the house, whether I do something or not. There is no discount for me having a lock on my front door, but I'm expected to have a lock on my front door and to lock it, uh, right? But if I don't lock it, somebody can just walk in the front door, right? And that's yep. zero work effort, effort versus me having a alarm system that goes off with bells and whistles and all that kind of stuff. And so these are the kind of things you have to think about when you're building your system is what kind of systems you're going to put in place and what kind of protections and what kind of data are you trying to protect? Um, this is something that, that really hits home with me because I, I worked for many years in classified spaces for the government and we would spend, you know, billions and billions of dollars building these secure facilities where you could not have any wireless signals coming in or out of the buildings. There was no windows in these buildings for that reason, right? Uh, we, we're working out of basements and, and we have all these top secret information we have access to. And then I would get an email from somebody like Kip and go, hey, you want to meet for lunch at 1.30? And I'd look and it would be classified top secret, right? Because people <laughs> move classified things all the time because they're on a top secret network. They're like, oh, by it's default, it must be top secret. I'm like, it's not top secret, Kip. You, you want to meet me for lunch? That's not a top secret thing. That's just regular lunch. Let's just go get lunch, right? Um, but because you if you classify that as top secret, now we have to protect that for the next 40 years. And that's storage costs, that's, that, that's encryption costs, that's all those things add up. And we had this huge excess of cost because of overclassification. And so it's something that if you're working in the government sector, you're always trained on classify it to the lowest level possible that still gives you the protections you need. And not everything is top secret. Not everything is secret. Not everything is confidential. A lot of things are just unclassified. Like, is Jason going to the doctor this afternoon? That's not a top secret appointment. It's just an appointment. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, so yeah, this work factor principle uh, is, is, is pretty interesting. And I hope that the, the, uh, the examples that we've given so far has helped you understand you know, why it is that we need to have a, that we need to make it difficult for attackers, but not so difficult that we're actually spending too much money to protect something. Uh, you see what I mean? We're looking for balance here, right? We, we want it to be hard enough, but we don't want it to be too expensive. And that's really what work factor is. And, um, and I think that was a great example you gave. Uh, I can give so many examples. In fact, um, my book, Fire Doesn't Innovate, I talk in there in part two about the 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 uh, the the never-ending struggle to demonstrate that dollars spent on cybersecurity can create good business value, and it doesn't just slow people down, you know, and kill productivity and make people think that they're standing in a long sweaty line at the airport trying to get to their flight, which is what a lot of senior decision makers think about when I, you know, bring up the subject of hey, we need to you know install this new control. Um, so the business value of cybersecurity is such an important aspect of this uh, whole thing about work factor. Now, uh, one of the things that we've been encouraging you to do is to bring these security architecture and design principles to work with you and to use them on the job so that you can better understand new technologies that may come at you on the job or um, new uh, new architectures, right? Going from on-premises to cloud. Um, whatever the change is, whatever the new thing is, you can use these security design principles to, to understand it, 
better, faster, and to know how to secure it. So if there's a new product that comes along and you're asking yourself, you know, what, what should we do to secure this thing? You can think about work factor and you can start to think about, okay, what's the value of the asset in this, right? Is this just a, uh, a content management system that contains marketing materials? Well, that's a completely different situation than a content management system that contains personal information for citizens of the European Union, which is like radioactive waste. <laughs> you know, it can get, you can get in big trouble if you don't protect that stuff uh, really, really, really well. So you want the work factor to be really high on the content management system that has the PI. Uh, and you, you don't need it to be that high on the content management system that has the marketing material. So I hope that helps you understand how you can bring work factor uh, on the job. Uh, Jason, did you have any other thoughts about, uh, you know, how they could use work factor to do good work? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things I just realized is as we went through this, we went right into the examples and we never actually gave the definition from the paper. Ah. So I'm going to go back and do that real quick. Um, the actual definition we talk about work factor is to quote, consider the cost of defeating security with a, the value of the asset being protected and B, the anticipated resources available to the attacker. And I think so, that's consistent with everything we've said so far. So 100%. I, I still think we're okay. Yeah, we, we are. I just wanted to get it out there of what the official definition is, right? And I think these are the two things that are always things that we need to consider, right? It's what is the thing you're protecting and how much is that really worth to you? Yeah. And the other piece that's really important is the resources available to the attacker. And that is a piece that a lot of people don't consider, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, let's say I have a little cabin in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, I'm in the middle of the forest. I'm 50 miles from the closest neighbor, whatever, right? I could probably leave my door unlocked and no one's going to go there because A, they have to know where my little cabin in the woods is and B, they have to get there, right? That's yep. just a lot of work. And there's no roads and you got to hike 50 miles or whatever. You know, it could be really a challenge. So that would be, hey, the value of the asset, probably pretty small. It's just an empty cabin. The anticipated uh, resource available to the attacker, a lot of work for them to get there, right? Consider that versus where I live now. Um, I live within, you know, there's a million people within probably 20 miles of my house. There's a lot of threats out there that could get to my house. And there's all my stuff. I've got my checkbooks and my, my papers and my computers and my electronics and all that stuff. So in this house, I lock the door. I have security cameras. I'm in a gated community. So you have to have a code to get into the community and all those kinds of things because there's more value that I'm trying to protect, my family included, right? I don't want people coming in here and holding my family hostage, for instance, right? right? Um, and the resource available to the attacker, I'm trying to stop the majority of people, right? I'm not going to stop everybody. And if there's a determined threat, they can climb the fence. They can, you know, uh, piggyback on somebody else's cars they're driving in the neighborhood. They can, you know, uh, break a window and jump into my house, whatever it is. There's ways that they can do it, but it all comes down to how much effort are they going to have to put into it. And is it easier to do that than it is just to go to the neighborhood across the street that doesn't have a fence and doesn't have a gate and they didn't lock their doors and there's no lights right. on and all those other things, right? So these are the kind of things we want to think about. And, and you know, I think you made a great point in your book when you talk about, you know, don't go for perfect. Your whole job here is to optimize your security to deal with a cyber attacker and really just to be a harder target than the guy next to you. Um, right. it, it's like the old joke, right? If a bear is chasing you and your buddy in the woods, what do you have to think about? <laughs> can I at least run faster than my buddy? Not not the bear. I just got to run faster than my buddy, right? right. So I can get right. away and Kip's going to get eaten by the bear, right? Yeah. Uh, that's really what we're talking about here is, is. You know, the attackers are going to attack. Uh, and even uh, a couple episodes we were talking about, I was going through my logs and we saw all these different attacks. And really it was just opportunistic attacks. People are throwing uh, Windows exploits at my Linux server. They had no research. They had no idea what was going on. Right. But because the resources available to do that, which are bots in a cloud-based environment, cost them almost nothing, then 
they can just throw attacks all day long and hopefully they'll hit something, right? And that's that's what they're trying to do. And we are trying to do the opposite by making it harder, by putting in firewalls, by putting exactly. IPSs, by putting in AI and ML-based detection with, systems. and all Without that. overspending and right. without making people's lives awful and they can't get their job done, right? Because that goes back to psychological acceptability. So all these security design principles, right? They're related to each other. They They touch on each other. And, you know, and so we absolutely need to be considering uh, really all of these things together because we push too hard on one. It's going to mess up another one. There's kind of an equilibrium we're looking for. Exactly. And I think one of the biggest things that you have to keep in mind is that second part of the definition, right? The anticipated resources available to the attacker. That's right. So I think you mentioned this at the top of the episode. Uh, You know, if there's an APT coming after you, an advanced persistent threat, they're going to get in, right? If they want to, they can spend unlimited. For instance, if the U.S. government wanted to hack my computer, um, or the Russian government, or the Chinese government, they've got way more resources than any of us and any of our companies do. That's right. They are eventually going to get in. That's it's right. Just, I, I mean, they probably have a, they're going to spend. They probably have a license for Pegasus or something like Pegasus, right? Yeah. Which can which can comp- completely compromise your mobile device silently. And, and and with 100% or near 100% uh, certainty, and it'll operate in a way that you'll have no idea that, it, that it's actually happening there. Uh, and so, yeah, if, I mean, that's an, that's a, that is an attacker who, for all practical purposes, has unlimited resources. And, uh, you know, so it's, I mean, how do, you, how do you protect against that? Well, you can put on your tinfoil hat. Yeah, <laughs> you can well, live in a Faraday cage. You can get so paranoid that you can't get your operations done, right? But That's right. honestly, I run a couple of companies. You run a company as well, a couple of companies as well. Yep. And we're not going to put that level of effort to protect our stuff because we're not holding nuclear secrets in launch codes, right? Right. We are holding corporate proprietary data, and so there is a a level that we need to protect, and we want to be good stewards of the information we hold of our customers and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But we're also not going to spend a million dollars to protect a ten dollar asset. Instead, right. we are thinking about the anticipated resources of the attackers who are going to go after companies our size. Mm-hmm. And generally, it's going to be what a basic penetration tester is going to use. Is there an open uh, open source exploit out there? Will it be exploitable by something like Metasploit? And when I look at the um, you know the CVSS and the, the reports that we see for a particular vulnerability, it will tell you there is a publicly known exploit for this. Yes? Well, then I'm worried about it. If there's not, I'm not as worried because now we're talking zero days and those things are worth a lot of money and people aren't usually going to waste a zero day on somebody my size. They're not going to burn a zero day on us. It's not worth it, right? Because for them, they're going to, that's like launching a million dollar missile to kill a fly. Yep. And so these are the things you have to think about, right? The value of the asset and what is available to the person who's most likely going to attack you. And yes, you are taking some risk, but if we can get to the 90% or 95% solution and spend $10,000 a year, but to get to 100% would cost me $100,000 or a million dollars a year. I'm probably going to do the $10,000 solution, right? As long as that meets my legal and compliance requirements to make sure I'm protected. Yeah, and that actually goes over to a concept, which I'm not going to unpack fully uh, here because I've done it actually several times in my other podcast. But reasonable cybersecurity is what the Federal Trade Commission in the United States says we are all obligated to practice. And their definition of reasonable comes back down to uh, what is reasonable for an organization like yours, right? Considering the, the type amount of data that you're collecting and your size and your sophistication. So if I'm running a pizza joint and I'm using credit cards, uh, you know, if I'm taking credit cards so people can buy their slice, I'm not going to be compared to a bank. Yep. I don't, I'm not going to be expected to have bank level 
security for my pizza joint, I'm going to be compared to other pizza places. And, you know, and if I'm like wildly out of step with other pizza places, like if I'm, if people are giving me their credit card and I'm taking a photograph of it and storing it in an iCloud, okay, well, I'm clearly out, you know, I'm not in step with everybody else. Right. So that's, I'm being unreasonable. So anyway. And, and I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but for those who are interested in what Kip just talked about, this actually goes back to a 1932 court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, I love pulling out random things, uh, but it's it's actually called the T.J. Hooper case. And I, I'm pretty sure I talked about this on the podcast, but essentially there was a boat that was carrying cargo going up the Mississippi River. They didn't have a radio on board. Storm came out of nowhere. The ship went to the bottom of the Mississippi. They lost a million dollars in cargo, which is a ton of money in those days in 1932. That'd be like, you know, a couple hundred million probably today. today. Um, yeah. So it's a huge amount of money. The person whose cargo it was went to the shipping company and said, Hey, your ship sank. You owe me the money for my cargo. Give me my million dollars. And they go, No, 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 not our fault. Act of God. We can't control the weather. And they went all the way to the Supreme Court with this. And what the ruling was, was, Hey, ship, most ships at this point, like 80% of the industry had radios. If you had a radio, you would have known that storm was coming. You would have gone back to port. You wouldn't have been at the bottom of the Mississippi. The cargo would have been safe. So therefore, since you didn't practice reasonable industry care, which is what you're talking about, if you're a pizza joint, you need to do what other pizza joints are doing. If you're a bank, you got to do what other banks are doing. Having that reasonable level of expectation and protection, if you don't, you can be held liable for that. So as a pizza joint, you should, if you have a Wi-Fi network, it should be password protected. It shouldn't be open if your cash register is on it. Uh, if you have a, a small network uh, that has your point of sale terminals, uh, you want to make sure there's a firewall protecting you from the outside. That's right. Basic things like that that cost very little money, you're expected to do. But you're not expected to have you know, government-grade encryption and top-secret vaults and Faraday cages and all that because you're a pizza joint, right? You That's don't right. need that. Um, and right. so those are the kind of things you have to think about there. So Absolutely. anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. And <laughs> I've seen a lot of cybersecurity people get themselves in twists because they, they're working for a non-bank. And they get mad because the non-bank won't go up to bank level security, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, dude. Well, I have this problem a lot as well, uh, coming from a military background. Um, sometimes I have to go, hold on, dummy. This isn't the government anymore, right? <laughs> you don't right. need that level of protection because that's going to cost way too much for yeah. what you're doing, right? It's and ridiculous. even I see this a lot with a lot of veterans that we bring in or a lot of IT or cybersecurity folks we take in from the military. And I have several on my staff. Uh, including my CTO is, is a is a former uh, uh, veteran as well, uh, and I have to sometimes remind him like, look, we're a training company. We're not the NSA. We don't right. need that level of protection. <laughs> right. But they've been trained to be twitchy yes. when they don't have a certain amount of protection, and so, which so is fine when you have Uncle Sam's checkbook. But I don't have Uncle Sam's checkbook. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, this is Uncle Jason. He's got different economics. <laughs> yes, my economics or skill are a little different than the U.S. military. <laughs> Well, this has been a, a great conversation about uh, this security design principle uh, work factor. I, I don't have anything else to add to this. I think we've done a pretty good job. You know, if, if, I'm going to give Jason the final word on this, but if you think we've missed anything on work factor, or if you have a question, like if there's something that, that you were expected us to mention and we didn't mention it, we want to hear from you. You can just shoot us an email. You can go over to our website, yourcyberpath.com. There's an ask button that you can uh, click right there. And you'll come straight to us. So don't hesitate. We love to hear from you. Uh, but any final words, Jason? Yeah. So you mentioned twice in the podcast, you know, hey, I mentioned this on my other podcast, but you didn't tell them what your podcast was. So for those who okay. are interested, Kip, pitch your other podcast. <laughs> okay. 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 So uh, I have a podcast with another Jason. Actually, he goes by Jake. His name's Jake Bernstein. He's a cybersecurity and privacy attorney. 
He works at a pretty big law firm. It's called K&L Gates. And, uh, and, and it's called uh, the Cyber Risk Management Podcast. What do you know? Uh, we've been doing it for about five years. And when I first went out to uh, sort of claim you know, my little podcast space uh, for that. Nobody had grabbed all those keywords. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. So anyway, it's called it's called uh, the Cyber Risk Management Podcast. You can find it anywhere you can find your cyber path. So just open up your podcast app where you're listening to us right now and just do a search uh, for the Cyber Risk Management Podcast. And I invite you to check out an episode in there and see what you think. Because what we're doing over in that podcast is a little different. What we're doing is we're talking about cybersecurity issues that a CISO and an attorney, you know, talk about on a regular basis. And we're talking about big decisions that need to be made, uh, such as, you know, what does it mean to practice reasonable cybersecurity? And, you know, so this will help you do a better job of understanding why your boss comes and asks you these weird questions, you know, like what's going on in your boss's head as they're trying to you know, do good work and serve their organization and you're on their team. And if, if you want to understand their headspace, that's go listen to my other podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, the last thing I wanted to say is thank you all for listening to another episode of Your Cyberpath. Um, if you just can't get enough and you want to check out all the old episodes, uh, we have them all at yourcyberpath.com. Mm-hmm. Any episode we ever mentioned, like episode 61 with John Strand, you can just go to yourcyberpath.com slash one. Or go to yourcyberpath.com. In the top right corner, there is a search bar. And you can type in anything you want to learn about, like resumes, interviews, negotiations, certifications, whatever. And all the episodes will come up that relate to that. So you can listen to those. Uh, lots of great content out there. And we look forward to having you again on the next episode. Until and then. by the way, the reason why you can do that is because every episode has a full transcript on the website. So if you don't have time to listen and you just want to skim, you can do that too. Uh, and, uh, yeah, other than that, I uh, just want to thank you again for listening to us at your cyber path, and we will see you next time at your cyber path on the next episode. Bye everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of your cyber path. Don't miss an episode. Press the subscribe button. Now, if you would like to learn more about how to get your dream cybersecurity job, then be sure to visit yourcyberpath.com, where you can access the show notes, search the archive of our top tips and tricks and discover some fantastic bonus content.